0: Welcome to podcast number 103 of My Favorite Detective Stories, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's date is June 9, 2020. Our guest this week is New York Times bestselling author, Michael Carita, a former newspaper reporter and private investigator. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages and have won or been nominated for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Edgar Award, Seamus Award, Barry Award, Quill Award, International Thriller Writers Award and The Golden Dagger. They've been selected as the best books of the year by numerous publications. Those Who Wish Me Dead is currently in production as a major motion picture starring Angelina Jolie, Nicholas Holt, Tyler Perry, John Barenthal, and Aidan Gillen, and is directed by Taylor Sheridan. The Chill, his first novel under the Scott Carson name, is called a terrific horror suspense disaster novel with characters you root for and a story that grips you from the first page. That quote was by Stephen King. This is a great interview, and I really enjoyed talking with Michael about his craft, his time as a private investigator, and working as a uh, full-time writer. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career, spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstead We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire, as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat-and-mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Well, hello, and... Well, is it Michael or is it Scott?
1: Well, it's a little bit of both. We have uh, Scott Carson and Michael Carita, the dual writing personalities. And uh, I think, think hopefully you'll be hearing from, from a little bit of, of each one today.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, as we talk today, it's uh, March 27th, and uh, we've got a glorious day here in Milford, Connecticut. Uh, sunny, warm wind blowing for a change and uh just a great day how about out there in the greater bloomington indiana area
1: Uh, about the same it's the warmest it has been in a while and storms blew off this morning i'm actually on the campus of indiana university and um it is it is a ghost town right now one was sent home but it is a beautiful day and i wanted to take advantage of being out in the fresh air and the sun here so i hope the uh I hope the chirping birds are nice background and not distracting.
0: Not at all. It's beautiful. I love it. Thank you. And I appreciate that. See, I also went to Indiana University, but I went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Have you ever heard of that?
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. All right.
0: IUP. They always wondered.
1: A prestigious school with with less basketball renown, but still a prestigious school.
0: That's true. And uh, so when people ask, oh, yeah, I went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And they said, what? I said, no, it's not a branch of Indiana University in Pennsylvania. You know, it's its own school. So, so I got a little right. bit, of, I got a little mileage and prestige out of Indiana University. And uh, so did one of my other guests, uh, but that's for another podcast. Anyway, so, uh, but a long time ago, uh, you decided to uh, become a writer and you started writing, but you had a little bit of a, a very interesting career before you got uh, putting pen to paper. And I just want to hear a little bit how you got started and how it all began. So let me know.
1: Sure. Um, I, first of all, I just want to thank you again. I appreciate the chance to talk about this. But the, the start of my career, as far as I'm concerned, really begins at the public library with my mother and father, uh, because they instilled a love of reading for pleasure in, um, in me when I was very young. Just that obviously took hold, because I, I've been writing for as long as I've been reading. And I published earlier than most. I actually uh, published two books before I graduated from IU. And I was able to do that thanks to the um, good fortune and kindness of mentors. I had the good fortune of meeting some really important and generous people at the right time. One being uh, a retired sports writer of international renown, really Bob Hamill, who went out of his way to teach me the craft and teach me about the the serious mm-hmm. and professional way to pursue the craft. And the other um, private investigator named Don Johnson, uh, I began an internship program with him when I was in high school and I turned into part-time work, which turned into my day job for um, a while as well. And And those two, um, those two experiences, those two mentors stand out as... You know, when people ask me, okay, how did you publish so early? It it really has very little to do with anything I did. And it has a lot to do with a couple of people who went way out of their way for, um, you know, no reason other than to pay it forward. And that gave me a a big leg up.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know Bob Hamill, but part of my surprise little promised you that I would have a surprise. But uh, I do know Don Johnson. I know him uh, from National Association of Legal Investigators. And another, I was curious if you were a Nally guy. All right. I am a Nally guy. I have been since 2004. And I also know him from Intellinet and I-N-T-L-L-E-T, another right. private investigation association. And you're right. Uh, Don is a class act. Always was, always have been, always put his best foot forward. He was the uh, national director of Nally for a while. There, he had served in many, many functions at Nally, and I consider him to be a colleague and a friend. Uh, that was really nice of you to give him a shout out. Before you even said anything, I didn't even know anything about uh, your affiliation with Don. So that's that's wonderful to hear, and I'm just happy to hear it. Um, so I guess I'm curious about the sorry, surprise. To
1: you, but I'm, I'm curious if uh, we might have actually crossed paths at some point. I remember an Intel Net in Boston would have been, oh, maybe like oh four oh five era conference out there. I don't know. We might have crossed paths at some point.
2: Maybe
0: that's true, and uh, and I don't know. But uh, you know, I my earliest recollections of Nally was in Indianapolis. Actually, that's where I went to my first Nally conference, and I believe it was in two thousand four, possible. So yeah great time we went I would to, have been up
1: there too sure
0: we went to saint elmo's for dinner one night yeah and that was a best, great
1: best shrimp cocktail in the country
0: yeah well i i had a steak that just melted in my mouth just believable so uh yeah it was great and uh but i might have met you there too so how about that small world right and somewhere along yeah, the line is. we probably both know kevin bacon so it's just uh <laughs> anyway we have so um, I'm going. I'm going to tell you um, that uh, how I how I, I came to uh, want to interview. You in that, a wonderful, beautifully designed hard copy appeared in my mailbox uh, several months ago, and it was by Scott Carson called "The Chill." And it's lovely cover inside. I've never seen such nice inside drawings as I see in this one beautiful book and it's really well done and it's really nice and I thought well that's nice but why did they send me this book I mean maybe it might have had to do with something of me being a Seamus judge last year but so I called the nice people at uh, I think it's Shree Williams um, yes the, uh, Nicole Dewey I believe and uh, I said hey gee this is really nice this is a really great book but you know well, why me <laughs> And uh, so he said, "Well, you have a podcast," and I, and I said, "Well, gee, I'd love to interview the author, and it'd be great. And besides, we have something in common—we're both private investigators at one time." And that's right, you know. And it was just like a, a, such a beautiful um, you know, connection being made there, you know, so serendipitous. So um, they got in touch with you, we got in touch, and um, we actually started this podcast last week. But there were some uh, tech, rem- tech gremlins that uh, interrupted us in mid-conversation, had to re- redo it for this week. But in the meantime, I had, I, had a, I had a week, right, precious week, and I had to stop reading The Chill at around page, uh, I think it's the, the, the chapter where um, the sheriff's son goes swimming in uh, the lake. But I won't get, say, give anything else out. I stopped right there. You're going to ask me, John, why did you stop? So why did you stop? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's because anytime I start reading a writer who has a nice body of work, and I'm picking it up later on rear, and I see that I like the writing and I like storytelling, I stop immediately and I go back, and I go back on the back list, and now I've started reading, tonight I said goodbye. So oh well,
1: thank you.
0: And uh, I will now read them in order. Now, I know that you're going to tell me that there's a certain order to some books and not be another order to another book, but I will happily agree with you on that, but I'll also say I'll also get to see your evolution as a writer, okay, sure, so that's going to be fun for me too as well. I really enjoy that. I really love reading a writer from the get-go watching how they evolve, but when I got a couple pages into tonight, I said goodbye. There I saw the acknowledgement for Bob Hamill, and I realized uh, just now from you talking to me what a serious impact that was for you to have this guy as, I think, was he not only your uh, mentor, but he was also
1: your editor for that too, right?
2: Yeah,
1: and he was the editor for my unpublished books that have never seen the light of day. I mean, Bob hung in there giving me time for years as as a teacher and You know, of course, as a writer, the amount of time it takes to give someone a really quality instructional edit on a full-length manuscript, and to do that repeatedly for someone um, for for no material reward is a really rare thing. Uh, So, yeah, Bob Bob meant the world. still does. Yeah. I
0: I don't disagree with you that
2: the
1: value of his mentorship— or
0: the value of a good editor's mentorship now transferring visual to a uh, career is so so important um, for a development of a writer. To think that uh, any writer comes uh, out of the box with a perfect script that they won't change a comma or a period is ridiculous. Those days are long gone. And uh, you know, I've got to tell you that, or not, they never happened. They weren't not long gone. They never happened. It's always been. A good editor, a good writer. Uh, The way I like to put it is that uh, I bring the coal to the editor, and they help me turn it into diamonds. Absolutely. Carrying the coal from Newcastle. But anyway, uh, (laughs) I I had to just give you the uh, little surprise there because I couldn't hold it any longer. I'm one of those guys that don't hold on to surprises well. So, But anyway, I I just wanted to say that uh, uh, I'm really enjoying having a bookend Literally, bookend <laughs> of um, your first published work, I believe, right? And now, yes, uh, this. So, you have to do your job now and fill me in with all the interesting jobs that helped you mold yourself. And with the help of Don and Bob, part today. So, kind of go back to the early days and just kind of walk me through everything.
1: Sure. I mean, obviously, we've both worked as PIs, so you immediately will understand how that job is the perfect for the mill, if you're a writer. I mean, if if you want to write fiction of any type, you're out there in the field, you're dealing with people from all walks of life, regular basis. And you have to learn, um, if you're any good, you have to learn how to communicate well with people from, you know, the most educated scholar that I might run into from Indiana University or a doctor, attorney on a regular basis, attorney clients, to them being, you know, out in the Hills and hollers of Southern Indiana, and talking to someone from a very, very different background. Um, we're up in Indianapolis, and in, you see all of these different experiences, and you learn. I think that you learn a lot of, but specific to writing, you learn the power of language and the power of communication. Um, and I and I think the idea of empathy and shades of gray, which that translates so well to um, crime fiction in particular. You know, the crime novels stand out to me are the the novels where character motivations can leave you leave you personally as a reader feeling a little conflicted. You know, you're you're watching the character make the dark turn, but you understand why, um, or you're watching you're watching someone climb toward redemption and and fall short. And I think that that sort of perspective on on human effort with the understanding of the importance of communication and the ability to talk to people who are very on the surface very unlike is incredibly important. I don't know if you agree with that but
0: oh yeah I made a uh, made invest investigative interviewing my expertise within my work
1: as a licensed
0: private investigator and investigator for the last forty two years i my uh, sociology class techniques of interviewing in uh, September through December of nineteen uh, seventy-five, started me on that path, and I would travel the world—not uh, the world, but the country—to go to conferences where there might be one or two speakers related to investigative interviewing, and and paramount to that was uh, establishing rapport, and you have to be able to establish rapport uh, across all—all. All, I want to use the word barrier because that's what they are. They're barriers. They're barriers between Absolutely. you, you know, and uh, whatever is holding that person back from speaking with you. And when you reduce those obstacles, and allow that person to tell their story, because everybody has a story to tell. It's just uh, getting out of the way of it. And uh, that's the thing that I, I agree with you 100% on, Michael. It's just, it is so uh, paramount that you be able to do that. And it's within that realm that I know and and you know for me, and I know for you that so many good lines of dialogue have just conscripted right from the actual reports of the cases that we've worked
2: <laughs>
1: oh absolutely i mean we we definitely i think have an eye for uh for mining the gems you know my other my other professional experience was as a journalist right, and you know that was the same situation it's you're having. In many cases, hours of conversation with someone, and my favorite experiences were always when I could actually be in the field with someone mm-hmm. who had a unique expertise or a unique perspective. And rather than interviewing them in a formal fashion, I could sort of inhabit their world for at least a few hours and and make it into more of a conversation and less of a you know Q and A. Right. And out of that, you get the you know in the newspaper business, you've got to you've got to burn a lot of those gems right away because um, you know, it has to go into the story the next day, but in the PI world, I, I mean, there've been so many times where, whether it's just a twist of a phrase or a quirk of language or a unique point of view on a situation where it immediately just kind of makes, you know, it's a glimmer in your eye and you say, Oh, th- this one will be used. I don't know when, <laughs> I don't know how, but I will never forget this and it will appear at some point.
0: Oh Yeah and it's it's called uh, swiping not stealing and uh <laughs> and and you know and your, and yes, and to your point no, but to your point too, as well, really interesting that uh when you're talking to somebody as opposed to interviewing them, you're curious about them. It's amazing how people open up because they're not defensive about waiting to get batted about the head or shoulders with the next question. But if you start talking to them and asking about them, then the conversation flows naturally, and then the ability for them to recall the events and talk to you are a lot easier, and it greases the skids, and it makes that. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a talent. Not everybody has it, and especially a lot, not a lot of police officers. Believe it or not, they they just rely on their badges too much and don't rely on oh, the, yes. the softer skills, as we both know, and uh, just With really that
1: transition from being a. A public sector um, law enforcement officer to the private sector, I think a lot of a lot of those guys think that it will be easy and mm-hmm. they aren't prepared for for that shift. I mean, that's a very interesting point. I like your use of the word barrier, too, because that is
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's exactly how it feels. And I think it, there's a kind of a micro lesson there. And then also there's the macro lesson of any story needs conflict great drama and conflict can come from the big barriers that you know most people would think of as okay this is the plot but i think so much really good emotional investment for the reader comes from more micro conflict and those can be barriers in communication i mean
2: Mm -hmm. uh, to
1: use the chill as an example the relationship between father and son Mm -hmm. uh, steve and aaron in that book the conflict there has an obvious tension point, but it on its most important layer to me it's that the father does not know how to talk to his son any longer, and the son does not know how to talk to or hear his father, and they both want to be heard they want to communicate, but they a barrier has um, and I think that's where as a writer at least that's when I really connect with the story. I become more invested if I see that parallel track between the human barrier and the, what I will call the plot or story.
2: Mm.
0: Not to give away any of this story from the chill, but um, the absence of uh, his wife and her, his mother, right? Right. Uh, yes. Was maybe the glue that held that family together and they have, and they became like uh Humpty Dumpty. They fell off the wall and now they got to get put back together again. The wall falling off the wall was the death of their loved you know, either mother or, or spouse. So, but Hey, that's just my humble opinion. Anyway.
1: No, you're exactly right. It's a perfect read on it because I, I viewed her and a lot of this stuff, it's not clear to me until I'm in a second or third draft But you begin to to see things that are already there and and then chisel away to make them a little bit more clear. But I sort of, I realized that the, um, the mother and wife, she served as a bridge between this, young man trying to grow in to uh, a legacy and the older man who is often feeling as if his, his son is failing. Yep. Um, and we're embarrassing the legacy and the bridge between them, what allowed them to work through things historically in their relationship, uh, was the existence of a, of a mediator. And mm-hmm. now they've lost that The bridge is gone and, and they're kind of looking at each other. When we Page one on, we've got two characters who really love each other, but they're staring at each other across a canyon or a divide. They don't understand how to bridge it.
2: Mm.
0: Okay.
1: Well, um,
0: 15 books later, I'll get back to the chill. <laughs> 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 now, I, was, hope, I,
2: hope I hope you,
0: hope. you make it there. Oh, trust me, Michael, I will get there because I, uh, I, when I uh, glom onto to a new writer, I... Uh, I'm like the Hoover vacuum cleaner. That's my uh stand book. And that's my uh, coffee table book It goes back and forth, back and forth. And that's until it gets read and it goes on to the next one. I just, uh, I, I learned that a long time ago that uh, with uh, Lawrence block, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, Lawrence Block. Oh, sure. All right. The writer of the, when mat- the
1: sacred gin mill closes. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. With the, uh, 8 million ways
1: to die. Some of the best.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I might've started reading him at about 8 million ways to die. And that's when I decided, Oh, time out. And back then I could actually go back to the publisher and get, um, soft cover. Now those are worth, uh, a small fortune right now because they're out of print. But I sure. I read all of those and they brought me right back up to Ways to Die and then I started reading them as I came along. Darn it! I had to wait. I couldn't wait for the soft covers. I had to buy the hardbacks. Darn it! So, but anyway, <laughs> uh, and and just as a, an interesting aside, next month I am taking a class that is uh, uh, moderated by uh, Mr. Block, and it was oh, it was supposed to be in person in Brooklyn. But next month is uh, April uh, 2020. And uh, as I'm speaking to you right now, uh, it is the uh, epicenter for the the Corona vid vid 19 virus. I think that's the first time I might have said the whole word out out loud. So I'm not traveling to Brooklyn anytime soon. And uh, he was wise enough to cancel the class in person. But we're now doing it kind of a... um, new newfangled way with uh with email and whatnot so it's going to be a very interesting way to do it but yeah i'm taking a class put on by the master so anyway One i of the
1: all-time greats.
0: yeah uh, i digress i apologize so take me back to when you were a young journalist what was the work that you were doing uh that was that and was that before or after your pi work
1: um they kind of ran simultaneously.
0: oh they did so that's was, right
1: that's right you yeah. did tell me that there was an overlap You know, there's a stretch there where I was writing, I was a full-time student, I was writing fiction, and working for the newspaper, and doing some part-time PI work, Um, and I would write fiction during that stretch between, like, midnight and three o'clock in the morning, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd wake up early, I'd start my day, work out, go to class, I loved being in the newsroom, I mean, just absolutely loved it, the energy and the education of the newsroom was a really special thing. And if I had worked for Don, you know, I would work work that in, and um, then I would come home and write. And I look at that now with a little bit more distance, and it it <laughs> sounds exhausting. But you know, when you, when you're 19 years old, you have I think a unique combination of um, energy and confidence that like you you're never going to feel the same way <laughs> as you did at 19 or 20 in that sense of you know, give, give me the goal and I can go tackle this thing. I'll figure, I'll figure a way um, forward it. And that was a really, really fun period of my life that I, I'm sure I didn't appreciate until I was um, farther down the road from it. Because when you're, when you're living something day day to day, it's just, for the most part is what it is. And then you get a little distance and look back and think at how special some of those opportunities were. And mm. for me, the chance to work at a newspaper in the size of market that we had and in the era that I had was so special because I was able, you know, you ask what I cover, I was able to cover about everything. I mean, I, I went from sports, general assignment to police beat, had a column for a while. And in a town like Bloomington, where you have some of the great minds, and great stories intersecting because of this large campus, you really had a chance to talk to some of the, you know, elite thinkers and performers in a lot of different fields.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: now add that, you know, the crime beat and kind of the cop shop experience. And it was just, it was a, a tremendous education. And it also fell at perfect time because the newspaper had a, it, had a digital presence, but we were still primarily a print product.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I never wrote for a newspaper during the era of on, online comment. Let alone having to live tweet from the courtroom, you know, while trying to cover a trial. Mm. So, I, I have a, almost an antiquated um, knowledge of of working journalism I, because I think we were right on the fringe. I mean, I, I had been gone only see, I would have been gone only a, a little bit before they would have been asking reporters to um, embrace Facebook and Twitter and social media. And, you know, you, then you were out there. In the oh uh, eight oh nine recession, newspapers were getting hammered and had layoffs. I I missed the the dark days of it, and I experienced the some some of the last. Um, I I hope I'm wrong with that, but right now it feels like some of the last days of a fully staffed, profit making print newspaper.
0: Yeah, I that think was,
1: that was an amazing thing.
0: I think you're right on several fronts, and uh, the first one I was going to comment. Was that all that work uh that you were doing at the time, school um the uh newspaper, and then working for a uh, private investigator um and and that energy where it was coming from and that confidence there was another phrase for it it was young, dumb, and full of another word and- <laughs> that, that r- rides with dumb, <laughs> so yeah, young, dumb, and another word that rhymes with dumb but anyway Those- uh.
1: Those can be good days.
0: Yes, yes, and uh, and the second or the second thing was look at some of the greatest writers that have you know of our time that come out of the newsrooms. Michael Connolly, right? David Simon, Laura Lippman, with the post with the, ball, with the with the Balmer son, Balmer son, they say it there, and uh, <laughs> I can think of probably some other people that have uh, really plied their trade, uh, hitting deadlines. And really, coming up with not bearing the lead, but making sure that hook was up front, and uh, being able to write in a, uh, in a readable, turn-the-page fashion, and that—that's a lot to be said about that. And the third absolutely. thing, absolutely. And the third thing I want to say is that you might have been at not the golden age of print, but by the fact that you were there, you were still getting old-school lessons, which have served you well going into your your writing career. Am I? Would I be wrong if I said that?
1: No, without question. The the amount of of uh institutional knowledge and wisdom and uh skill with craft that was in the newsroom at the time that I was there was um you know, I mentioned earlier how much I, I loved hanging around them. Yeah. And that that is pretty, it every day. I mean, there's an energy to a newsroom that you know, I talked about the, the energy I had to you know, tackle these different jobs and projects, a lot of it probably came out of that environment. Mm-hmm. There's a great energy to a newsroom. There's a great sense of humor that I think mirrors the the PI sense of humor. You know, it's a little dark, a little cynical. Right. That, oh, yeah. suits me just fine.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but everyone was really, everyone was really good. And there was a competitiveness to the quality of writing, which was an important lesson because it made me hungry to be better. And then if you've worked in a newspaper, there are two things you must understand right away. Uh, one discipline you need to deliver. You just, you, you can't say the muse wasn't talking to me today. Right. Uh, so you learn how to deliver. And then you also learn very quickly that you don't deserve the reader's attention. You haven't just earned that, you know, by existing. You, you have to figure out a way to earn it. And you talk about studying the hook early mm-hmm. and, the writers you mentioned um you know Connolly and laura and david simon that whole group like you you can pick up one of their books and, and almost immediately perceive that they grasp the fact that the reader is a very very smart audience member very discerning and has seen a lot of good stuff before and can put this down really fast yeah. unless you earn not
0: yep now uh and and there was two things i just wanted to comment on based upon what you just said and what you said previously too was about um not having uh the muse there that day not and not writing and also uh writing between 12 uh midnight and 3 in the morning and i got to tell you when i go to conferences and i and people are saying well i'm just having troubles you know with my book and i'm just having trouble getting started and I'm, well, are you not uh, I'm just, I can't find the time and it's like no no you make the time. Pure and simple, you make yes. the time. And like you said, there is no muse. Well, okay, there is a creativity spark, I'll go with that. But you don't have to wait for it to 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 hit you. Read the last chapter and get your juices flowing with that and then go go into the next one, you know? Or read the last draft, going with it, you know? And um I come from your school too of uh Get your fanny in the chair, get your hands on the keyboard and get going. That's how you do it.
1: Um, yeah, I think that the subconscious rewards effort, um, but it doesn't reward waiting for inspiration. And mm-hmm. so if, if you're attacking, if you're fighting and trying to push that boulder uphill every day, uh, that's when I think, you know, I'll call it the subconscious, call it the muse, call it w- whatever you like. That's when the surprises will find will you. And suddenly you'll be writing something that. Um, might have exceeded your grasp. Mhm. And I think you had a, a per, you had a perfect storm of uh PI
0: experience hanging around the journalism, having a great mentor like Bob, having a great mentor like uh Don, having your parents teach you curiosity and entertaining reading. All of that came about and after, you know, so many thousands of words, I won't say how many. Um your first book was published. So kind of like start walking now through that part of your career. Yeah,
1: yeah so the first one uh, would have been 20. And I Just Say Goodbye. That was sold to St. Martin's Press. And that was that initial contact was made, again, through Bob Hamill. He was working on a book um, edited by a man named Pete Wolverton. And he made an introduction between, uh, between me and Pete. And Pete gave my first, what I consider my first Lincoln Perry book, uh, he gave that a read, and he, he didn't buy it, but he told me he essentially like liked the voice, and he liked the character, and it was just you know kind of a keep at it, and let let me know if you ever have something else. And I think it was six months later that I dropped uh, the sequel on his head. And to me tonight, I said goodbye to second book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go I look at that first book now, and it feels it feels to me like an interview. You know, the first that first unpublished book was where I got to know my characters. I got to know Lincoln and Amy and Joe, and I got to you know, walk around that west side of Cleveland with them and, and get a sense of it from their point of view. And once I had gotten a sense of them, I was able to start telling their stories and, and get myself out of the way a little bit better. And so tonight I said goodbye while it was my first published book. Um, it, you know, To me, it's, it's the, the sequel and at least the, the journey of these characters.
0: And let's face it. Come on, Mike. You were Michael. You were young at the time, so you know why not have that first book as a as a great learning experience? And you have a New York City editor telling you, "Well, it's nice, but you know, keep at it and keep going," and gave you um uh motivation to keep working. And you didn't go hide and say, "Why?" Wow, you know, that that's the best thing. You know, it's you know should have been a Pulitzer Prize winner. What does that guy know? You worked worked at creating it It through that discovery, you found out, you know, your voice and you found out uh, how to make those characters work with the plot or plot structure that you were in. Do I, do I get that right?
2: Absolutely.
1: And in his feedback, one of the other things it's, I remember about his it was a short, but very encouraging phone call. And I remember taking away the sense of his criticism of the book was accurate. You know, I, there weren't any points that I, Really felt I could push back on, and so then I had the choice of want to rewrite this story and keep trying to to hammer it into something that is you know good enough, or do you want to start fresh with a, a a better story that addresses all of those things and provides the energy that comes with a first draft? And I'm I'm very grateful that I made the choice to start a new book as opposed to returning to rewrite a fundamentally flawed story
0: okay now um the uh stubborn ukrainian in me uh might have uh, might have tried to uh you know uh hammer that square peg into the round hole but uh i'm you know i can see your wisdom in moving forward and now you have the benefit of hindsight and did make the right right decision right
1: i i certainly feel like i did you okay know, uh, c- could i have gotten I, I think his, his feedback was just so, so accurate from my, you know, even, even then my very naive take on it. Then I, I had read enough books and I had paid enough attention to what writers were doing that I, I heard nothing but good points and accurate feedback. And
0: can you ask anything you know, more to, of a of an editor?
1: <laughs> no, exactly. And, right. and so you know, I I've had I've been so fortunate in the editors I've worked with. I've only over the course of, of fifteen books I've only worked with really good editors. And uh, that is you know, that that can make or break a career. And um Pete certainly was he was the, the, the right guy at the right time. Well, I'm glad to
2: hear that
0: and uh it just seemed like you know, it was part of your um tutelage. It was part of the journey that you had to take on your on your on your route and uh, and how how was uh your first uh, your first published novel received
1: um un- un- uncommonly well i had no idea what the experience was going to be like you know i didn't have an agent i had no contacts in publishing um other than than bob hamill and um, you know the, f- the first book went out and won a couple prizes nominated for um for an edgar was published in, I think, almost ten different languages before I graduated. And um, I've, this is—I've got to make a quick aside here as I pace around the IU campus. Um, when I applied for graduation, I think you needed back then like 118 credits, and I had say 120, 122, and I got a letter back saying that uh, I hadn't completed the necessary coursework for graduation. You hadn't, and when I—I I had not. So when I, when I ran this down with the academic counselor, she pointed out that when I had changed majors, I had neglected to fulfill my intensive writing requirement. And at that, at, at that point, I had two published novels in, you know, maybe 10 languages. I've been working at a newspaper. I'd written I don't know how many hundred articles. And what ended up holding... Delay my graduation was a failure to fulfill the intensive writing requirement, and she didn't back off it either. It wasn't like they were going to give me any sort of a waiver, so I had to, I had to finish out with a correspondence class in creative writing, and uh, then graduate you know six months after my my term. So I I always love sharing that story. It amused me then, probably less so than it does now. But yeah, well, it
0: it amused me too. yeah it really did i have not had i got to tell you i have not had a, a good belly laugh or two uh, in a couple of weeks and obviously why but uh yeah that is amazing it's like and and back then they didn't have like life uh transfer credits or whatever the 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 uh, pseudonym for that is now right yeah
1: right nope there was there was no option for that so th- the best thing i could find that would allow me to just Kind of move on into the workforce and not have to stay tethered to campus at that point in time because online education didn't really exist yet. Was uh correspondence, which you know, sending mm. your papers by email, get feedback right. by email. So I was doing uh I was doing PI work. I remember you know taking some taking some course notes while sitting on surveillance, waiting for something to happen.
2: Yeah,
0: back in the days before podcasts. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah,
0: and maybe. I don't know. I don't know if Howard Stern was syndicated yet at that time, but, uh, you know, there wasn't much to do. Uh, you're right. Watch paint dry. Watch, uh, leaves fall. Yeah. Yeah. On surveillance. I I know those days. Yeah, I know.
2: Yes. Those those glorious days.
0: That is so funny. Oh my God. Well, you didn't keep your intensive writing, you know, when you switched your major, you know, and, and that's the stuff that like people have nightmares about later on in life when they're, you know, they're, reliving like they have an anxious dream they it's that college course that they had signed up for but never uh attended and now they're being told they're now they're being told that they have an exam the next day and oh by the way they're not wearing any pants you know so it's like uh (laughs) yeah one of those anxiety dreams and you got to live one that's great that's fantastic (laughs) oh that's great so anyhow um so you, you kind of skipped by the second book what was the second book after tonight I said goodbye.
1: Yeah. Second book was called sorrow's Anthem and continued the uh, PI character, Lincoln Perry. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so those books were all set in, in Cleveland, which I, I knew that area pretty well. Uh, that's where all of my extended family lives and both of my parents are from the West side of Cleveland. So, you know, we were always up there when I was a kid. It was, the, it was the one kind of grittier urban area that, I actually felt like I knew well enough to write about, mm-hmm. and I wanted to write in that urban tradition. That that was the stuff that had me really excited at that time. So I, I wrote a few books in the series, and then uh, I took a kind of a, a big swing with a ghost story, which I knew was a was a tougher market. But I was just I was in love with the the idea and the setting. It's uh, a book called "So Cold the River," and said in this against the backdrop of this remarkable story of um, a resort in the middle of nowhere in southern indiana that for a brief period at the beginning of the 20th century was one of the um, global uh, destinations for you know the world's elite and it was all all about the ideas of this miraculous healing water mineral spring and so i wrote this ghost story and uh, ended up that with another publisher as the editor i i had been working with wanted me to to keep going with the series and of course I, <laughs> <laughs> and and i was was really into the new idea so um i i moved over to the publisher that um i'm with now and that little brown and, and company and um, my editor there for the first six books there was named michael Peach, who uh you know, I, I can't speak highly enough of of Michael. Just an, an incredible editor. He worked with everyone from David Foster Wallace on Infinite Chess to Michael Connolly and and James Patterson. You know, he he edited Donna Tart and you know Hardboiled Crime. He he really he, his range and his mind are so unique. Uh, and the chance to work with him was it was, it was the right opportunity at the right time. And I always appreciated uh, Pete Wolverton a few years, a few years later, I caught up with him and he actually, he told me basically that same message that, you know, from, for where I was, what I was trying to do, I transitioned there was, was the right choice. So, mm-hmm. um, now he will also remind me that if I ever go back to Lincoln Perry, he wants a book. So okay. I, I, it's nice to be able to maintain a little bit of a, you know, friendship with editors, even if you're not not working with them any longer. I've had some good ones.
0: Well, that's nice. You didn't burn those bridges. And yeah, you can always come back to, uh, if you want to write that story again. Uh, I uh, I happen to like uh, PI stories. I happen to like Prime. Uh, but, you know, you're doing something with the chill, but we're not there yet. Uh, so uh, back then, before the Amazon algorithms and the also bots and whatnot, you made a decision to uh, to change essentially genres. did you stay in a different genre for the next six books with uh, the new uh, the new publisher little brown?
1: no, I, I stayed in uh, for just a couple and then you know one of the, the things that I will never be able to thank Michael Peach for enough was he gave me the the freedom to, to really push boundaries in a way that uh, you know publishers even even then even in that era before there was what i would call kind of like the total online algorithm domination it it was very uncommon and i moved from ghost stories to you know everything was it's all under the big tent of suspense Uh Uh, but but i wrote ghost stories i wrote um what i would consider a family drama with you know crime at its core book called the prophet Uh, i wrote a sort of survival chase thriller, those who wish me dead. And while to I guess the average reader, those might not seem all that different, you know, from the business, it from a marketing standpoint, it is looked at as a very different thing. Um uh, and and what Michael and Little Brown allowed me to do was was really special. I was I was given you know more more rope than I, I think a lot of writers
0: No, no, and the interesting thing that you said there uh was you wrote what interested you, and when the books came out in the bookstores or on the shelves, and I use that those two words interchangeably, you know, um, that um, people saw a name of a title, they saw a cover, and they saw your name, and they said, "Oh, I read this guy before. I liked him before." Let me look at this and see what this does. And you didn't get any pushback. They, The readers were el- elastic enough to uh, fall into your cadence, rhythms, plot, character setting, concepts with a, a sense of uh, uh, willingness. Is that a good word, willingness? And then uh, they found themselves at the end saying that was an enjoyable read. Now am I putting words into different, uh, different ideas to different, int- yeah.
1: but go ahead. I my mean- favorite readers, my favorite readers would have done exactly what you described. Um, but there's certainly, there are some readers who say, you know what? I just, I, I don't do ghost stories. I don't do the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And then there are some, some fans in that genre who would say PI I, I. novels are not my thing. And that actually, it kind of brings us up to the chill because it had been, almost 10 years since I had written a supernatural book. Uh-huh. And at that point, I, I, I had a sense that from, from everything from marketing standpoints to just pro- trying to provide the readers um, something clear, that offering some distinction of, you know, hey, this, this guy Carson is going to write supernatural book. He's going to give you the ghost stories and give you the weird stuff. Might not be a bad play. And I think one of the reasons it's not a true top secret pseudonym is because i I wanted to be sure that my readers who had hung in there for every book and had enjoyed as you say you know they were they're responding to the voice and to mm-hmm. i guess to me as a storyteller um uh, there are plenty of of readers who are happy to cross over between genres yep. and so that I wanted to make sure if you have anyone who's willing to Invest the time you know the money in into buying a book and then the time into reading it i don't I don't want to hide from those people, those people who built my career so to put out a a book just under the name scott Carson and and never admit to those you know faithful fan that it is actually me felt uh it just felt like the wrong the wrong
0: yeah no, and to hear it from that standpoint, it makes perfect sense. You know, you, you've you also been a student of the publishing world. You've seen the hemorrhaging that's gone on, the contractions in traditional publishing. You've seen the changes go on. Uh, and now, you, now you're now you seeing the indie movement. And you're also seeing uh, how uh, there's other forces at play when the, the big five, I don't know if they're the even big five anymore, down to four, don't have the same marketing cloud as Amazon has. And Amazon, by the way, has its own imprint now or imprints, sure. imprints, yeah. you know, you have to say to yourself, geez, it makes sense. Uh, and I'm I'm not disagreeing with you on it at all. So, but it's also an experiment. You're going to see how it works and you're going to see how it plays. Uh, but it also gives you a little bit more flexibility so that you're not uh, tied into the algorithms going to get hurt um, by that. I mean, I hate to say it, getting hurt by the algorithms, but realistically, yeah, no, it is. True. You know, it uh, is. So you keep your Michael Carita algorithms pure with the books that you write, and, um, and then you bring in Scott Carson, and now you're writing in a new genre, and that is going to give you different also bots. It's going to get, put you in a different world, and it, it might have its own synergy. You're not hedging your bet by saying who you are, and that, that's, that's, that answered the, the schizophrenic question that we, I asked you you know 50-some 50, right. 50 minutes ago. Uh, But it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Now, me on the other hand, I uh, I write nonfiction under my name. I write fiction under my name, and uh, I probably cross genres under my name. And it's because, well, I I just plain don't don't care.
1: (laughs) And that's fine. You got a great name. You got a good name. It's a name that should sell.
0: I hope so. (laughs) I I do. I I hope so. You know. Now, keep in mind. it's a little bit of the reverse, though, of what you're, you're um, of what you're describing, because there was this um, uh, pedestrian writing uh, writer. I, I forget. I, I think the initials started out J.K. and wrote something about some guy that rode around on sticks and what have you, whatever. And then decided to write a book called Casual Vacancy*, and um, it got panned uh-huh. panned terribly by the press. And that that poor writer you know struggling writer just couldn't you know couldn't poor uh, robert yeah yeah so then it became robert galbraith and who wrote the the Cormoran uh, Strike series which i've read every single one of those and i've never read a single one of those guy riding around on the stick books and uh you know for me that's because i, I happen to like <laughs> police procedurals and and who done it, mysteries, you know? So but yeah. but you know, that, that poor writer JK could have never sold that book or those books that way. But when Robert Galbraith started to get uh, critical acclaim, oh the publisher accidentally let it slip that it was the pseudonym for uh J. K. Rowling. So yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh just a funny, funny jest. So um uh, so you brought us up to date rather quickly. Um, have you been having fun since uh, the 19 year old decided to uh, uh, create a character called Lincoln Perry?
1: I have been having more fun than anyone should be allowed to have. Um, I mean, it is, it, it truly is what I always wanted to do. This is the, mm-hmm. you know, my, my dream as a, as a kid was to make my living writing books. I've, I've been able to do that. So, um, yeah, I've been very fortunate, still having a lot of fun with it. And I like to obviously find ways to change it up. So Scott Carson arrived mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I like to imagine there will be opportunities. I know there are opportunities out there. I don't, I like to imagine I'll continue to push in a different direction. Um, oh, yeah. you mentioned that you write non nonfiction too. You know, that's something right. I would narrative nonfiction is a, is a reading obsession of mine, and. Uh, yeah, I don't know what all I've done some, some screenwriting too. I don't know what else is out there, but I know that the uh the, the simple act of storytelling, which is not simple at all, but the, the daily pursuit of storytelling in really any medium is something that, you know, I'm always gonna be in love with that.
0: And you know, the great thing about it is, you know, uh you can. And, you know, you show the uh flexibility um to Write in different genres. You love the idea of uh, storytelling. And, you know, as long as uh, you feel uh, that you, you're not just uh, mailing one in, and, and I hate to say it, but some of my favorite writers, and not Lawrence Block, another, a couple other ones. I don't know.
2: We both, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. You, you can tell. And that goes back to earlier we were talking about how, you know, how smart the reader is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the reader knows when the writer's heart was not inside.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, the
1: reader can tell that. So
2: yeah, you I, I got to figure out
1: what your heart is in and write that.
0: Yeah, I think uh, there was one writer who will remain nameless, and I will never say anything negative about this person. Well, I might, but not in this, not today. But I'll, I might say something negative about this writer later. Um, it was like all of the research that that writer had done for all the different books kind of must have, he must, I said he, so now it's half the population. Um <laughs> He must have been coming up against an editor deadline, and just kind of put a mishmash together and threw all that all that great research he never used in any of his other books into one book. And it, I, I was just left so flat. Now I gave him a chance, and I'm still reading him afterwards. And he got better. You know, obviously, rebounded after that. Hey, but you know, not everybody can write. You know, thirty in a row that are just absolutely drop dead gorgeous. You know, it's you know you got to give yep, him a got to give him a chance.
1: Keep he, swinging the bat, right? That's it. I mean that. The, uh, the old cliche about there are a lot of, uh, 300 hitters in the hall of fame Mm -hmm. and it's, um, I, I, the special thing is the reader who is willing to give you that chance. Even if they say, you know, eh, last one did kind of leave me flat. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if you have earned their enough of their trust, they are willing to come back and, uh, go another round with you. That that's a really special thing.
0: Okay. Well, I think this is a good point. Uh, we're. You've probably walked your legs off now, and uh, the uh, campus cops are probably shadowing you at a distance wondering what you're doing, you know. Uh, you know, I,
1: it's funny you mention that because I actually have seen the – they don't have a whole lot on their plate right now, but I have <laughs> seen a campus police car go by twice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that van out in front of your house last week, now this. you know, yeah. Come on, Michael. What What is the second – what, what is I the double get A? some
1: counter, counter surveillance going here.
0: That's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and, and, and really, what's his double secret life? You know, who is really Scott Carson? You know, CIA operative. Why does, why does he
1: have to have a path? I don't understand that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, how can readers get in touch with Michael Carita and Scott Carson? And, and how can they uh, get into this uh, lovely um, uh, readership that you, that's awaiting them?
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. It's, uh, Books dot com or Michael Corita, dot com, And then, um, you know, from there I can be found on Facebook and Twitter and whatever comes next. Not, I haven't reached the TikTok the TikTok levels yet, but I'm sure it's around the bend.
0: You mean you don't have a you know, Instagram Instagram
1: meme going?
0: Yeah. I got you.
1: Yeah. Not yet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. Get going there. So, um, I uh, I do appreciate you coming on. I, I thank you so much for your candor and honesty. I love the fact that we talked about um, the early days. You know, uh, I tell all the writers that come on, I always want to know about the early days. I always want to know about when it was um, the beginnings, you know, when it was all new, when it was all different, the effort that had to be put in, the twists, the turns. Because, you know, there's a lot of writers out there that are trying to make their way in this world. And if they know that there's a path and that maybe Michael Corita made it a little smoother and a little straighter for them, that's great. I'm glad to be a part of that on their journey.
1: So, um, I, re- I appreciate you providing that opportunity. It, it, it was a very unique experience for me to have the chance to go back and look at it specifically and with some distance and, uh, yeah, with a good interviewer guide. Go so I appreciate this chance. Oh, you're welcome, Mike.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Mike Spencer. At 29 years old, Mike moved from Florida back to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1994. He realized he wasn't going to achieve his dream job as a newspaper reporter for a major daily newspaper. He had a cheap apartment, a pantry of rice and beans, and a $500 1970s Dodge Dart at work sometimes. One day, he answered a help wanted ad in the Oakland Tribune for a workers' compensation claims investigator. He never looked back, though he has trashed many more cars in his two-decade career as a private detective. Spencer has written a book titled Private Eye Confidential, and it's part memoir, part Trove of lurid True Cases. Mike has a degree from UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism and tells his stories with a journalist's eye for fact and details. Tales of love, death, justice, deceit, comedy, and vengeance spill from his short, accessible, and compelling book. It displays both the best and the worst of human nature. Private investigators see everything. And Spencer has encountered a man who wanted to prove his paternity from a frozen tampon, a man hidden from society while a large Large fortune awaited in a grieving mother who wanted to make sure her tragedy didn't occur again. The book also contains cheating husbands, felonious wrestlers, and some hidden Florida crime and inveterate scammers. Uh, it's going to be a fun interview, I guarantee it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campaign. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.